indeed that is the title of this evening's sermon, Sin and Atonement. And we will be examining in our time together 2 Samuel chapter 21. 2 Samuel chapter 21. Friends, if you have your Bible, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 21, beginning at verse 1 down to the end of verse 14. Friends, we will read together. We'll study the entirety of this section together. Friends, the Word of God says, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement, that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say? that I shall do for you. They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us, that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first day of harvest, at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizba, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock, from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them. On the day the Philistines killed Saul at Gilboa, and he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the lamb. Beloved, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for this time together tonight. Father, we pray that you would have mercy upon us as we study. Lord, help us to see the severity of our own blood guilt and sin before you. But let us see, we pray, once again, the beauty of Jesus, whose blood truly atones for our sin, who has made satisfaction to you, O God, once and for all, all by the sacrifice of himself. O Spirit, come and lead us into all truth, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, friends, this is an epilogue of sorts. We have gone through the majority of this biblical narrative on the life of David. We closed our study last week looking at the end of Sheba's rebellion. And we saw how God has been faithful to David. God has preserved his servant David. He has built for him a house. What God promised to David was that he would not take his steadfast love from him. 
as he took it from Saul who was before him. God would preserve David and his house. For the Lord made a covenant with the son of Jesse, saying to David, through you, uh, there would come blessing to the nations. God said, I will build you a house, David, and the throne of your kingdom shall not pass away. God has kept his covenant with David. And so the author of 2 Samuel is using these final chapters to sort of tie together the threads of David's biography to help us see more clearly how the promises of God are now being funneled through David and being traced through the son of Jesse. Because from now on, friends, David, despite his faults, will be the model king. He will be the one by which all other kings of Israel and Judah are measured. And he is the archetype. He is the the principal type by which we know Jesus as the Messiah. So here we are going in verse 1, and uh, we're reminded that this is not located within a delineated year, but it is just within the time of David, right? So the, the uh, author of 2 Samuel tells us that this episode happened within the reign of David, within those 40 years that David was on the throne, uh, there was this episode of a famine. So in those days, David is on the throne and there's a famine. Now, friends, famines weren't uncommon in the ancient world. In fact, they were quite common. We remember Joseph and his family, how God brought Joseph's family down to Egypt by means of the severe famine that hit Canaan and that also hit Egypt. And friends, we're reminded that famines could have all kinds of uh, sources. They could be for drought. They could be for blight. They could be for some kind of pestilence. They could even be from war, where invading armies had despoiled and stolen the harvest. But we know it's not war, right, because there's peace and stability in David's time. But it seems like it was either some kind of drought or blight. But this famine is a severe famine. It's three years, year after year after year. And so you think about it from as a farmer. Well, one year, maybe next year will be better. Well, then that famine of the previous year compounds the misery of the second year and the third year. So this is a pretty desperate spot. Well, David does what every faithful servant of the Lord, what every king that God has put over his people should do to seek the Lord's face. Here we're seeing David at his best. We're seeing David as the king who pleads for his people. David seeks the face of the Lord. Now again, friends, when we've looked at the life of David, remember, when we see the virtue of David, we catch something of the glory of Jesus. We see something of the character, of the glory, of the ministry of Christ himself. When we look at the vices of David, when we look at the failures of David, well, in the same way, we are seeing the superiority, we are seeing the surpassing beauty and worthiness of King Jesus. So here, David serves as a model to emulate and gives us a taste of the ministry of Jesus. Just as Jesus intercedes for us as our great high priest, here we see David interceding for 
the people of Israel, praying and seeking the Lord's face. O Lord, why have you withheld the blessing of grain and food from your people? Remember, when God made a covenant with his people, when he took Israel to himself, he promised them. He said, if you will keep my law, if you will seek my face, if you will draw near to me, I will bless you in the land of promise. I'll make you fruitful, both in the womb and in the field. You will have grain in abundance. But we know that one of the curses of God, one of the promised judgments of God upon a rebellious people is that he will withhold the blessing of food. That he will cause the rain to be shut up. And indeed, that's what's going on. The rain has not fallen on the land. So friends, something's wrong. And David knows it. And so David seeks the Lord in prayer. So friends, let us follow the example of David. Uh, when we do find some particular calamity, some malady in our church or in our own families, let's ask the Lord for mercy. Let's ask the Lord to um, reveal to us how we might seek his face and return to him because we know indeed he's sovereign over these uh, calamities over these trials that come upon us. So the Lord tells David, he answers him in a clear oracle in verse one and tells him that the reason the famine has come upon the whole nation, upon the whole people, is because of the blood guilt of Saul and his house. Now remember, friends, this guilt, therefore, because it is the guilt of Saul and his family, because he's the king, there is ramifications for the people. That is, the sin of the king and of his house has consequence for the whole nation. Because in a sense, friends, Saul was representing the nation in this program. And what we see is a program of genocide. There is blood guilt on Saul and his house because of the murder, of the destruction of the Gibeonites. Because he put the Gibeonites to death. Well, friends, this is a serious sin. This is not a trivial matter. This is not something that uh, God will turn a blind eye to. It is a national crisis because, as I said, it's not only Saul now who has the blood guilt of the Gibeonites upon them, but because Saul was the anointed of the Lord and served as the king, he led the nation to engage in this act of cruelty and barbarity. So friends, again, we don't have any other record in Scripture of Saul putting the Gibeonites to death. This is enough to tell us that it indeed happened. But friends, you remember the slaughter of the priests at Nob? You remember how Saul and his rage against the priests of Nob ordered Doeg the Edomite to cut down every man, woman, and child that lived in that city of the priests. So, friends, Saul was a man known for his cruelty. And so, friends, it's not surprising that he sought to put these Gibeonites to death. Well, friends, what does this tell us? Friends, it tells us a couple of things about the character of God. Friends, God is patient, and God is forbearing, and Yet, friends, he promises that there is judgment. He promises that there will come a day of reckoning for the shedding of innocent blood. Uh, friends, we ought not to think that God turns a blind eye to the misery of people, to the cries of 
children, to the destruction of families and communities of persons. God is not impervious to that, nor does he ignore this. But this blood guilt cries out to him. Do you remember Cain and Abel? Do you remember how when Cain slaughtered his brother Abel in rage, God said to Cain, Cain, your brother Abel's blood cries out to me. Because God in his holiness will not ignore murder. He will not turn a blind eye to violence and evil. Yes, he is patient. And sometimes, friends, God is so forbearing, so merciful, so gracious, that man takes that forbearance as proof that God will not judge. Friends, in the Proverbs and the Psalms warn us against that. The wicked consoles himself in his sins, saying there will be no judgment to come. God has hidden his face. He will not see. The scriptures tell us, you foolish people, do you not know that God is in his forbearance has promised judgment? So friends, when you see atrocities committed, commit that to the Lord and pray that in his time he would bring his justice. We know, friends, that even if there is not equitable justice in this time and in this place, we know that the judgment of Christ is perfect. Friends, you know that that's something as a Christian you have that the secular world doesn't? If an evil dictator dies at home asleep on his bed, the secularist says there was no final justice. He never stood before the court. He never had to answer for his crime. But friends, we know that the moment a person dies, he is face to face with God. And that the moment we pass from this life to the next, we are face to face with the Lord of glory. And that there is an immediate private judgment, either to heaven as we are united to the Lord by faith, or to hell as we are estranged from God in our trespasses and sins. And friends, God has said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Friends, God is able to repay pound for pound, ounce for ounce, a perfect, fair, complete, and perfect justice. Friends, that's why we understand that the suffering of the sinner in hell is proportioned to their sins. That there is indeed a perfection to the wrath of God. Every sinner in hell is miserable, but friends, some have a greater capacity for misery than others in proportion to the heinousness and vileness of the sins that they've committed. Uh, let me do a quick example, friends. Uh, Jonathan Edwards gave the example of the infinite line. So I want you to imagine for a moment a line. Jonathan Edwards, going to the scriptures, tells us that every sin is an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God. You name a sin, friend. You name an iniquity, you name a transgression. May it be the smallest on your ledger of sins. That sin is worthy of an eternal punishment in a real place called hell because it is, in effect, cosmic treason against God. It carries the full weight of that rebellious attitude. 
But in addition to that, friends, though it may be infinite in length, that line, it can be added in its width or in its height and may become exceedingly more spacious. So friends, our sin, every sin, no matter how small, is worthy of hell. But friends, we do know intuitively, and the Word of God tells us that some sins are just more heinous and evil and wicked than others. They cause more damage. They cause more pain. They cause even greater destruction. But God is able to repay the wicked according to his work. So, friends, let us be sober in our judgment. And let us also remember, friends, that that judgment would fall on us lest we had fled to Christ for mercy. So this is a serious crime. In verse 2, so we see David calls the Gibeonites in and asks for uh, to speak with them. Now, we're reminded in verse 2 that the Gibeonites are not native Israelites. Now, the Scriptures tell us that Gibeon deceived the children of Israel. Uh, that when the, in the days of Joshua... As is going on right now, the children of Israel did not listen to the voice of God. When the Gibeonites came deceptively and said that they were a people from a distant land, from a foreign country, when they professed not to be natives of Canaan, the children of Israel did not seek the counsel of the Lord, nor did they seek his wisdom and instruction, but on their own human judgment, according to their own human reasoning and ability, they made a covenant. With Gibeon. Then lo and behold, Gibeon is a principal city in the land of Canaan. So now they're in a conundrum. They made an oath to Gibeon that they would not destroy them. And it was an oath in the name of the Lord. And yet they've been disobedient to God and making a covenant with these people of the land. So what was the result? Well, they became servants to Israel. They became woodcutters. And they even had a pride. They had a, a wonderful place. They were to serve the temple of the Lord. They were to serve the tabernacle. They were be, to be those that cut the wood for the fires and drew the water for the, for the boiling of the offerings. Friends, they got to have a place in the temple, assisting the Levites and the priests as they led the people in the worship of the Lord. Uh, again, friends, God's heart has always been for the nation. When God saved and called Abraham, it was to bless him to be a blessing. And with, even in the days of Israel, we see that God was continuing to call out to the Gentiles, to the foreigners around him, and that there were some being grafted in. So friends, even though Gibeon were not native Israelites, they were tasked with assisting with the worship of the Lord and the worship of God. So they were, as it were, permanent sojourners in the midst of Israel. And God had promised them a place. And yet we see Saul in his zeal sought to destroy them. Now, friends, you can kind of theorize, can't you, the reason Saul might want to do this? Well, the Gideons have knights have land and they have wealth and they're taking up space. Why should we let them be in this land of promise? We need to kick them out and put true Israelites there in the land of their possession. So Saul had a zeal for Israel, but it was motivated by a murderous intent. And God is bringing judgment upon Saul and his house for this scheme. Well, in verse 3, friends, notice that David does not seek the Lord's wisdom. When he is looking for atonement, he is asking the Gibeonites what they will accept 
Namely, he says, what will it take for you to bless the heritage of the Lord? What do you want? And the Gibeonites say, well, we don't want gold or silver. That's not what we want. And really, it's not our right to request that anyone be put to death. And David says, what do you want me to do? Tell me what it will take for you to bless the heritage of the Lord. Again, this is a contractual agreement. But David is not seeking the counsel of the Lord. He's trying to cut a deal with the Gibeonites. And friends, this is where things go off the rails because the Gibeonites ask for something that David should never have given. What do the Gibeonites ask for? They ask for seven sons of Saul. Seven sons of Saul, so that they may go to Gibeah of Saul and hang them before the Lord. Again, they understand that principle of representation. It was Saul who led the nation into sin and to promote a program to annihilate the Gibeonites. Here the Gibeonites are saying, we want to offer up these sons of Saul to say that our wrath, our vengeance has been satisfied, and then we will be happy to bless the people. Uh, and we see that the king agrees to it. But friends, friends, the scriptures tell us that sons shall not be put to death for the sins of their fathers, nor fathers for their sons, but that each should die for his own sin. Friends, uh, we know, for example, in, uh, in, in God's character that he is a God of steadfast love. Uh, he shows mercy uh, to his people. He does visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation, but it is of those who hate him. That is of those children who continue in the sins and rebellion and hatred of their fathers. Many times it is the sins and idols of the fathers that have consequences of judgment for those same rebellious sons. But if those sons of the wicked fathers will repent, if they will return to the Lord, if they will believe his promise, then God promises his steadfast love even to the thousandth generation. Friends, what David is doing here is wrong. This is not the way to make atonement for the sin of Saul. But again, he doesn't seek the face of the Lord. He seeks his own counsel and he seeks his own way. So again, friends, we're reminded that David, though he's a great king and a godly man, has the same feet of clay that we do, and the same temptation to trust his own mind and to trust his own ability and his own politicking. Friends, David is, this is real politic right here. I mean, he's going to cut a deal. He's going to do what he must in order to get Gibeon to bless Israel. But friends, this is the wisdom of man rather than the wisdom of God. This is David seeking to Make atonement in his own way rather than according to the word and mercies of God. So, friends, let us be very careful. Uh, let us ask the Lord to humble us that we might not be puffed up with pride, but that we would continually seek his face. Well, this uh, offering of the seven sons of Saul goes on. We know that David spares Mephibosheth because of his love for Jonathan and the covenant between them. But there are seven other sons or grandsons of Saul that are chosen. Two are of his concubine, Rizpah, and the other five are from Saul's daughter, Merib. So we have seven descendants of Saul who are brought to give you of Saul, the former capital 
under the reign and under the rule of Saul, and they are hanged on the mountain before the Lord. Okay, so you see the intent. Gibeon is saying, our vengeance is satisfied now, O Lord. You have given to the Gibeonites the seven sons of Saul. And the Gibeonites presumably have kept their end of the bargain. Now they're going to bless the heritage of the Lord. And they are put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. But something happens, or rather something doesn't happen. And that is, at first, the rain doesn't fall. So they've put the seven sons of Saul and grandsons up. They've been slaughtered before the Lord. And you would think, okay, vengeance is satisfied. Blood for blood, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Okay, there has been sufficient retribution. And yet God does not give the blessing of rain. So what do they do? Well, they keep the bodies up, which is, again, another defiance of the law of God. Deuteronomy tells us, Cursed is every man who is hanged upon a tree. The hanged man is the curse of God, which, of course, reminds us of the promise of the Messiah. The suffering Messiah would die upon the tree. He would die upon the cross. And in that way would demonstrate for us that in that moment of his death, he was the cursed one. Cursed by God for the sins of his people. But God gave very careful instructions that the hanged man was not to remain on the tree overnight. He was to be taken down. And he was to be buried. Because it was a great desecration to have those bodies hanging and decaying because even the condemned criminal friends is made in the image of God. And God is saying that it is a defilement and defamation of my glory to let one of my image bearers stand rotting away, that carcass rotting away. It must be buried. It must be covered. But Again, David disobeys, and they leave the seven sons of Saul. Their bodies are hanging up there, and then Rizpah does the honorable thing. She goes and camps on the mountaintop and drives the vultures away, drives the wolves away, protects those bodies, and does not allow them uh, to touch them. And then David hears of what Rizpah has done, and David comes to his senses. Verse 12, David realizes, "Uh uh-oh, I'm doing this in my own knowledge. I'm doing this in my own wisdom. But I'm not obeying the voice of God. Because what did God command? That the bones be buried. That these men be given a proper burial. And so he goes and he takes the bones of Saul and Jonathan. Remember, friends, Saul and Jonathan were desecrated in a very similar way. After the defeat of the People of Israel on Mount Gilboa, Saul took his own life. Jonathan was killed by the arrows. And what did the Philistines do? They took Saul and Jonathan and they paraded them through the streets. Their dead bodies, they took their heads and they mounted them on the gates, on the walls of the city, friends. It was a great, tragic desecration. And yet, friends... That's what David has done to the seven sons and grandsons of Saul. So David decides it's time to make things right. To give a burial. And he 
he takes all the bones of all the sons of Saul and he goes to Saul's father's Kish's tomb and that's where they are buried. He buries the bones of Saul and Jonathan, verse 14, in the land of Benjamin and Zillah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. You see, friends, Saul was a wicked man uh, in many respects. You know, we've even talked about how there seems to be from Samuel's conversation that Saul may indeed have been a man who was reconciled to God but had fallen grievously and greatly into sin. But friends, there's no doubt that Saul had caused a lot of harm to the nation of Israel and that his sin had great consequences, not just for himself, but for his family and the people that he led. Nevertheless, Saul was the anointed of the Lord. And when David, in reference to the Lord, in obedience to his commands, gives to Saul and his family a proper burial, now blood guilt is atoned for. Friends, David went about it all wrong. The sacrifice of these seven sons, in and of itself, would never atone for the, for the deaths of these Gibeonites. Friends, that's why God had given such an elaborate sacrificial system. Again, friends, have you ever tried to put your feet in the sandals of the children of Israel going to the tabernacle for worship? You know, God's people had very much the very similar liturgies that we have. They heard the word of God read. They heard sermons. They heard and they sang psalms and they worshiped together. But they also had sacraments of sacrifice. Instead of the Lord's Supper and baptism, friends, they had burnt offerings. They had elaborate washing rituals. They had lambs being offered up upon the grill of the bronze altar. And friends, what was the message God was driving home to the minds and hearts of his people through this sacrificial system? God is saying, I am holy. And you, my people, are not. Your sin is serious. Your guilt is severe. And were you to pass through the fire of my judgments, you would be consumed. You would be destroyed. You would be passed out of my sight. But, my people, look on that altar. What do you see? You see a sacrifice for you. You see a substitute for you. You see a stand-in for you. Oh no, it's not the animal. Why? Because you have to get more animals. You have to get more lambs, more goats, more sheep, more oxen. But there is coming a sacrifice to atone for your sins. There is coming, God is saying, in the sacrificial system, a soul sufficient substitute to satisfy the wrath of God for the sins of his people. Friends, Jesus Christ was pictured before them every time the animals were on the altar. That was how the gospel was 
proclaimed and preached to them in that sacrament. In addition to the word of God. So friends, God had told David, nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of the promised son who's to come. And when in David, in reverence for the Lord, began to hold to the promise and began to do what God had commanded, in that we see that God was pleased to bless. He was pleased to answer the plea of David for the blessing of the rain and for the harvest to come. So friends, you know, it is good for us as the church to pray uh, that the Lord would have mercy upon us. Uh, it's good for us as a local church to pray that uh, the Lord, if, if there be blood guilt, if there be sin, serious sin, that God would reveal it, that God would grant us repentance, that God would help us to return to Him and return to the same Christ whose blood is sufficient for us. Friends, let us be wary of trusting in our own minds uh, and in our own abilities. So friends, again, sin and atonement. Nothing for sin can atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So friends, today is that blood covering you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ. Lord Jesus, you are the sole sufficient substitute, the son of promise, who indeed satisfies the wrath of God. And not only, Father, do you satisfy the curse in Jesus, but you secure the blessing for us. So, Lord, we pray, help us to see Jesus as our all-sufficient Savior. And, dear Spirit, we pray, help us to walk in humility and joy and thankfulness before you. And, Lord, as sin arises in our lives, let us continue to return uh, to the one who truly atones for his people's sin. Thank you, Jesus, uh, for being he who saves his people from their sins. Father, we ask your mercy now in his name. Amen.